tonight what I'd like to do is continue the talk that I started last week, um, um, which was about the San Francisco 49ers. <laughs> They're doing well so far. <laughs> Sorry. I asked, some, I asked a couple people, friends, I said, oh, did you see the 49er game? And they said, oh, yeah, I heard that they won, or this and that. And I'm always like, wow, I'm still a sports guy. I watched the game, you know. <laughs> and actually, I have a great way. And if you don't know, the 49ers won going to the Super Bowl. So in two weeks, it will be a very small crowd here. <laughs> Probably. Um, 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 but... Um, Anyhow, it was it was good enough experience in the 49ers one, but um, really interesting to um, see uh, how sports is woven in Dharma has it's a little bit it's weaved into sports, and I'll just say this one thing and then I'll go on with the talk for the next, which was very interesting to hear some of the 49ers talk at the end about what happened or how they felt about what happened. And, and, they, and they were down 17 to nothing at the beginning of the game. And, you know, I saw 10 or 15 minutes, and I thought, oh yeah, I don't want to watch the rest of it. And I, my technique and my way of doing things is actually to tape the game and then watch it as I wish, but also speed through all the commercials, because I'm not so interested in the commercials anymore. And, um, but it was in, I watched a little bit afterwards, and it was, now i got to remember who it was. It wasn't Frank Gore, uh, it's the tight end. Pardon? Vernon Davis. Davis, thank you. Vernon Davis was talking about, uh, he had a hard year, because he didn't get a lot of passes, and he's a, he's a great player one of the greats, probably will end up in the Hall of Fame or something on the 49ers. But this year he didn't get a lot of passes. Um, and so he, he was asked about that. He said, oh no, it, that, that was fine. It was hard a little bit at first. And then, I, and then you, you, the one thing you understand in football is you go week by week. Oh, this is how it is now. This is what's happening now. And this is what you have to play with. And you have to play with what's actually happening now. And he said that, and so I did that, and so I realized even if it didn't matter if I was getting passes, if I was blocking for the quarterback, great, I was happy. I was, I was participating because something bigger, that's what he said also, something bigger has happened than just me getting passes or not. The important thing is, does the team win? Or is the Sangha moving forward? In other words, <laughs> you know, depending on how you translate English. Um, and but it was beautiful because he really got. Oh no, it's it's moment by moment, really. That's how you evaluate reality, and that's how you can work with reality skillfully. Whether you're sitting here, whether you're on a computer, whether you're a football player, and going to the Super Bowl in two weeks. <laughs> and, yeah, okay, I'm not, I could go on and on about that, but I'm not going to. <laughs> so, but I want to continue the talk that, 
began last week about the seven factors of enlightenment. I'll do a little bit of review and then go forward. And so the review begins with, I've been doing a number of talks about the four foundations of mindfulness, which seems like a long time now, you know, three, four, or five months, I don't even know how long. And, um, and we went through the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body. We went into the second foundation of mindfulness, which is called mindfulness of, it's often translated mindfulness of feeling, but it's not the way we think. It's mindfulness of Vedana, which is the feeling tone of any moment of human experience. Whether it's a mental experience, a physical experience, an emotional experience, a spiritual experience, a football experience, whatever it might be, it's, it has a quality to it that you can start to taste or perceive that it's either pleasant or it's unpleasant or it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant or in short terms neutral. And so the second foundation of mindfulness is the mindfulness of the Vedana, of a moment of human experience. And then the third foundation of mindfulness had, has to do with mindfulness of the heart and mind, of chitta, which can be translated either as heart, excuse me, as mind, or as heart. Because in those days when, when the Buddhism was developed, they're, they didn't divide heart and mind the way we do. That's a more modern uh, misunderstanding, we could call it. But it's, it's, you know, we do that now, but, but in the old days, heart and mind were both really here. And this was even true in the West. Uh, in, in Greece, when you look up the definition, the etymology of mind, it was located in the torso which is not the understanding we have anymore. So, so the third foundation is mindfulness of heart and mind, which includes all the mental capacities and the mentalness or the states of mind, but also states of heart and emotion, what we would call uh, emotionality. And then, and then we moved into the fourth foundation, which is mindfulness of dharma or dharmas. And, and, um, and it's a little different because it's not simply the physical, mental, emotional experience of what's sitting here. But it's understanding some of the Buddha's way of perceiving reality and applying that to your own experience. So, for example, there's, there's a number of lists in the fourth foundation of mindfulness and the first list is the five hindrances. And they're the five difficulties that are common and normal that happen and that we can start to perceive when we start to pay attention to what's here. And by paying attention or being mindful of them, they start to release or let go or open or we don't, get, we don't become so identified with desire, aversion, restlessness, sleepiness, doubt, the five hindrances. And, um, and so you start to learn a little more about how um, Buddhism perceives different states of reality in order to, to not be so identified with them. 
so that freedom can start to arise through the mindfulness practice. So there's the five hindrances and the five, uh, whatever, the six sense doors and the five aggregates and the six sense doors and the seven factors of enlightenment. And um, um, and then it goes on a little further from there, which I'll talk about next week. But um, um, what I started to talk about last week were the seven factors of enlightenment which are really beautiful qualities of heart and mind to start to recognize, start to perceive, are part of our experience. And they can happen without meditation and do happen without meditation. But it is very interesting when you start to meditate and really start to get some skill at meditation or some capacity to really be uh, present with one's experience in a moment-to-moment basis, you can start to recognize the qualities of uh, uh, the seven factors of enlightenment. And you can see them. And, and what they, the way they're outlined is, um, um, is three arising factors or arousing factors, three calming or stabilizing factors, and then mindfulness oversees all of it. So mindfulness being the either, you could think of it either way, it could be the fourth factor that oversees the three on each side, or it's the seventh factor, it's the first first factor, but it oversees the other six. <clears throat> and um, the seven factors that are in the Theravadan tradition, which Vipassana comes out of, is talked about very, very often by the elders as the doorway or the gateway to awakening. When these seven factors of heart and mind come into balance, that's when the potential for awakening is very strong. Very strong. Or, or we could say it another way. It's easier when they're in balance. Doesn't mean you can get enlightened at any time. But it helps, or it can help, if these seven factors of enlightenment have been uh, recognized, encouraged, nourished, matured. Okay? So, last week I talked about three of the seven factors. I talked a little about mindfulness. And I'm really loving the word mindfulness. Not just mindfulness, but mindfulness. Or heartfulness or body fullness because it points at the quality of attention that is cultivated in the Satipatthana Sutta, in the Sati practice, in the mindfulness practice. Because it's really asking for a fullness of what's here. To pay that we pay attention with our totality at the fullness of mind or the fullness of body or the fullness of heart. And that a kind of attention leads to awakening, leads to realization, leads to freedom or liberation in the Buddhist text. And so I, I read, I'll read one thing again from the mindfulness because I loved it. It's from Nosho uh, Ken Rinpoche. He said, mindfulness is the root of Dharma. Mindfulness is the root of Dharma. It is the body of practice. It is the fortress of the mind and heart. 
Mindfulness is the aid to the is is the aid to the wisdom of innate wakefulness. Mindfulness is an aid to the wisdom of innate wakefulness. Without mindfulness and presence of mind and heart, nothing can be accomplished. Dear Dharma friends, please be mindful, be bodyful, be heartful. By the aspirations of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, may all Dharma friends attain stable mindfulness and ascend the throne of perfect awakening. Beautiful, beautiful devotion, dedication to mindfulness, heartfulness, bodyfulness. And so, mindfulness which really balances, oversees, recognizes all of the other six factors, the arousing factors and the stabilizing factors, <coughs> the uplifting factors and the calming factors. And so last week I also talked about energy, one of the primary arousing or uplifting factors, energy or uh, effort or aliveness. And that's part of what's important when we meditate and when we pay attention. And when, um, uh, when the mind is in balance, it's part of the experience of a balanced mind. It's not just dull or dead or lost. It's actually awake. It's energized. And it, has, it brings with it that aliveness, that energy, has, brings with it the basis for what's called right effort in Buddhist practice. And, and I also talked about um, investigation, which is the second factor after energy or right effort or aliveness. And investigation is beautiful, quality of mind, and part of practice. Practice isn't just a dead thing. It's a living uh, 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 capacity to investigate or understand or to know our direct experience. This experience of sitting here. All that's needed is sitting right here. And so investigation all means we're interested in it. We're curious about it. We're understanding it or learning about it, not so much in a conceptual way, but in a direct, immediately, felt sense, knowing way. And so the, the quality of investigation of, of wonder and interest and curiosity is alive, not so much in a thinking about way, but in a direct perceiving way. <coughs> Again, I'll read some of the things I read last week um, about investigation from Stephen Batchelor. He said, to meditate is not to empty the mind and gape at things in a, tr in a trance-like stupor. Nothing significant will ever be revealed by just staring blankly at an object long and hard enough. To meditate is to probe or to investigate with intense sensitivity each glimmer of color, each cadence of sound, each touch of another's hand, each fumbling word that tries to utter what cannot be said. So it's an interest and a curiosity and a wondering and, a, and ultimately an intimacy 
with what we know and what we don't know. We're not afraid. It's one of the beautiful things I love about contemplative life and teaching is there's a tremendous value for what we don't know. It's not just, oh, I have to know everything. No, we learn how to get intimate or be curious about the not knowing. And the not knowing lives in us and knowing comes out of the not knowing. Not about figuring it out or thinking it through, but in letting ourselves not know and then staying very present with the direct and immediate experience, whether it's bodily or physically or, or emotionally or mentally or conceptually or, or mind state or beyond any of those in some new domain of experience that we may have not categorized as heart or mind or body. <clears throat> So, so I talked about uh, right effort or energy or aliveness, investigation or interest or it's sometimes called clarity or seeing clearly last week. And then this week I want to start now with the third of the arousing factors. Um, the third arousing factor of the seven foundations of mindfulness, uh, excuse me, of enlightenment seven factors of enlightenment. Boy, I I definitely watch too much football today. Um, Which is a really beautiful quality of heart and mind called joy or rapture. And it's really lovely to be able to include this in an understanding of what the heart and mind is like when it relaxes and it's present and it expands and it starts to uh, mature into its potentiality, into what it's capable of. And when I say this, of course, I'm talking about every heart and mind here has this potential that's pointed at in the seven factors of enlightenment. And so joy or rapture is part of what one starts to recognize in one's experience usually happens a little more on longer retreat when you've been sitting for a while and the heart and mind really starts to compose or collect or become very present and and wake up and you can start to recognize there's this kind of joy or rapture and it's not just the rapture of oh the 49ers won the Super Bowl that's a nice rapture and happiness or joy but it's much more sublime than that. It can be very quiet, but it's delicious. But it's not delicious like, you know, chocolate cheesecake. It's more refined than that. It's like a fresh, ripe fig when you haven't had one for a year. Something simple. I, I should even make it simpler. I'm not good at that yet. I still have to refine my joy a little. But, um, I, I got a note on a retreat one day from a woman. She said, my breath, and this is, she was doing breath practice and doing serious meditation practice. She said, my breath is truly the beloved. How can I bear it? The rapture is so intense. And that can e- easily actually happen on meditation retreats when we really get present with something. And the presence is is um, 
it's, it's not just the being mindful in some kind of distant way, but it's very intimate and it's very delicious and it's very sublime and it's, it's very pure and it starts to become uh, um, rapturous. And it's like, and people, all of a sudden you think, boy, I didn't know it was this good meditation. That's part of the feeling. Of it. Wow, I didn't know it could be this good. You know, I thought only sex was this good, or only drugs were this good, or only the Super Bowl was this good, or something. And then we start to say, oh no, the breath, you know, the breath, every, anybody here not breathing? Everybody breathing? That's what we're saying, could be that sublime that delicious, that rapturous, that joyful. And it's not just the breath, it's you that we're talking about. It's what's alive here. It's the consciousness that's here. You can find that joy in the in the mystery of the consciousness that's living right here. And of course it expands into the pleasure of any moment as we find ourselves fully here, fully present with energy and with a sense of wonder or investigation and then this kind of pleasure arises and this joy arises and this rapture arises and of course it's really with the other factors of enlightenment also <clears throat> it's really uh, part of what gets revealed is the delight of life itself and it's not the delight of oh, having the right life or the perfect life or the right partner. I mean, those are all great. Get, get them all. Have the right life, the right job, the right partner. Good, good luck. You know, <laughs> you know, it happens usually sometimes for a while, and that's great. But just the fact that we're alive, that's the really amazing mystery. That's what's really wonderful. And you'll all have a, more knowledge about that after you die. Right? Because you'll see, oh, this is not the same as when I was alive. Trust me on that. <laughs> uh, and I even, you know, I was talking with someone, we were talking about the rapture, and in the meditation, it's like, oh, the meditation is not just, oh, I'm being serious and I'm doing it right and I'm struggling and I'm doing right effort in some kind of uptight way. No, it's a joy. It's like, oh, I want to give everything to this. And, and, and it's a delicious thing to do. It's a delicious way to be alive, is to start to wake up moment by moment by moment, even if it's just with the breath. So the three arousing factors are uh, energy or right effort, investigation or clarity or clear seeing and then uh, the, the rapture or joy which arises in, as the meditation as we get composed here or we get unified here as we're practicing and then the three stabilizing qualities which are also beautiful qualities of heart and mind which come and you can recognize and, and it's, it's really wild actually when you start to see oh the mind and heart are here they're not fragmented anymore they're not diverted anymore by a zillion things they're not digressing they're just 
the, the, the whole, the totality of human consciousness is right here and it's awake and it's knowing what's happening. And so one of the qualities that arises with this kind of um, composure is calm or tranquil tranquility. Calm, tranquility, a, a calming or purity of heart and mind, a simplicity actually. And it's beautiful. And, and one of the things what, that one will notice often when this happens is the body becomes still. And even if there's some difficulty in the part body, and believe me, I sat in the cushion for years and years, I always had body dukkha. And for the new people, dukkha means suffering. Um, but when, when this kind of calm or, or, or uh, tranquility would come, the body would start to get still. And there would start to be a quietness or a simplicity. And again, an unfragmentedness to the experience. And, you know, the best example is, you ever see those bottles of water with little dirt and you shake it up and the dirt's all over the place? Or, But if you put the, the bottle down and let it sit for a while, all the stuff starts to settle. And then you start to get this calm or still water. And, it be, and that water then starts to become clear. You can see what's here. And this is part of what happens, especially with the stabilizing factors of the seven factors of enlightenment. This is from um, Krishnamurti. He said, when the mind is still, tranquil, not wanting a single thing, then it is possible to see what is true. When the mind and heart are still, tranquil, not wanting a single thing, then it is possible to see what is true. And it is the truth that is liberating and not your efforts to be free. This is from Krishnamurti. Beautiful understanding of what happens in practice and what can happen when the mind becomes still or tranquil. And there's no more, we're not moved around by our desire, our wanting, our neediness, whatever. And that's all fine stuff to work with when it's happening. But at some point, that might not be in the foreground of experience. And what might be in the foreground of the heart and mind is the kind of tranquility or stillness or calm. And, um, <clears throat> and, um, one other quote I'll read that I really love. Um, uh, it's from the Shinshin Ming, which I can't remember the translation of what that. Anybody know the translation of Shinshin Ming? I think it's the mind of absolute truth, but I can't quite remember. And it's it's a beautiful teaching. It's the one that begins. Uh, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Right? And then somewhere in there, it's a long text, beautiful text. They say that realization, realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. Realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. No, it's not that we learn how to make everything perfect. 
we learn how to be free of even trying to make things perfect. We start to recognize the perfection of any moment of experience. And so the stabilizing qualities, calm or tranquility, and that's really closely related to concentration, or samadhi is really a better word, or a sense of oneness with experience. This is from the Buddha. He said, when my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, and rid of imperfection, when it had become malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, imperturbility, I can't even say that word, imperturbility, I directed, inclined the mind to, and that's, that's when his mind got steady like that, got, got composed like that, got concentrated like that, that's when he turned his mind and heart to awakening. And that's when he woke up. And so it's a beautiful, and it, said, it goes on, I directed and climbed my mind to a number of different things, and then to the knowledge of the exhaustion of the four taints, of the taints, which are the four noble truths. And this is the capacity for steadiness and intimacy. Steadiness and intimacy. To concentrate. Which again, I, I still haven't found the best words in English, because concentrate has so many um, negative associations for people. People think they have to get tight or tense or do it a certain way and that's what concentrating is. But really, uh, um, one way you could think about it, you can do it with a certain amount of effort, but at some point the effort goes away. When you're really concentrated, there's no more effort. You've given yourself to the experience the experience is being known because there's no separation anymore between you and the experience of the breath or of the body or of the heart or of the mind. That there's a, the unfragmentation um, allows for a direct perception of the reality in a way that we would call concentrated or unified. I like as a better word, or composed, or collected, or a sense of oneness. I also think it's not a bad way to talk about what we call concentration, but what's talked about in Buddhism as samadhi. <coughs> to be present without any distraction. To be present with a breath, with not thinking about anything, just feeling and knowing the breath in that kind of immediate, mindful and concentrated way. Or, or the body, or an emotion. You're not thinking about the emotion. You can feel sadness, but the sadness in you are become one. There's no separation anymore. The knowing is permeates the sadness. The sadness is permeating the knowing. <coughs> And the mind, heart, love it. We love it when we're 
concentrated. Anybody ever notice that? When we really give ourselves to something, when we're really there, when we're not thinking about what happened last year in the playoffs, but we're just focusing on what's happening right now in the playoffs, or whatever it might be, or, or in your work, or in relating to your kids, or dealing with old parents, or going to, you know, the store, when we're actually there in a full way, in a complete way. And there's different ways that Samadhi has talked about, and I, I don't usually talk about this, but for some reason I got, I was thinking about it today, um, and so I thought I would mention it, because I, I like Samadhi a lot. I like Samadhi. I have a pretty good Samadhi, and I, you know, I've worked at it. I've definitely grown or matured over a number of years of practice, and it's also fun, and it leads to the kind of rapture or, or uh, 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 calmness or all the different qualities seem quite, quite closely related to samadhi uh, to me, or have been in my personal experience. So there's two kinds of samadhi that are talked about in Theravada Buddhism that are important. And one is called Kanaka Samadhi and one is called Apana Samadhi. And, um, and Apana is more generally what people think of as Samadhi. Here it says fixed or absorbed concentration. At this level, the five factors of absorption displace the five hindrances. So it's really being absorbed in your experience in a totality. Already I've been saying that, talking about that. But also, there's another kind that's important to recognize because it's very closely tied to mindfulness, which is kanaka samadhi, which is moment-by-moment samadhi, which is not just samadhi on, on the breath, or not just samadhi on one thing, and that's all we're paying attention to. Moment-to-moment means that we're not just fixing on an object of meditation, but the mind moves from object to object, but doesn't lose its concentratedness. So I hope that's clear, but you can, in other words, you can start being mindful in a very concentrated way, whether you're aware of a bodily experience, or a physical experience, or a sound, or a thought, or, and when I talk about thought, I mean the process of thought, or the process of hearing, or the process of feeling, or the process of tasting, or smelling, or touching, or the process of states of consciousness, that you can be very concentrated with kanaka samadhi. And it's really, really helpful to learn how to get absorbed in things, or to become one with things, to not simply pay attention from a distance. And I have a, a story uh, from the Zen <coughs> teaching from Sankhani, who was a who was a Korean Zen teacher, who I saw and I met a few times, and he was he was really fun to be around because he was the real thing. He wasn't. He was a real Zen teacher, and he wasn't afraid of being a real Zen teacher. So he would he would just say, he would just do things and then push you on it and see what happened. And you know, usually good things would happen. And uh, Sun Sunim said he said human beings misunderstand too much. Human beings misunderstand too much. 
but but what they understand is just somebody's opinion most of the time. What they understand is somebody just somebody's opinion most of the time. Like a dog barking. American dogs say, woof woof. <laughs> Korean dogs don't say that. Korean dogs say, mung mung. <laughs> but Polish dogs don't say that. Polish dogs say, how how. <laughs> so which dog is barking correctly? <laughs> This is human beings barking, not dogs barking. If dog and you become 100% one, then you know the sound of barking. This is Zen teaching. Boom, become one. So when you become one with your dog, come in and tell me what, what barking is. So, so you can hear the calm and the concentrated, the samadhi, the oneness, the presence, the simplicity, it's all happening in this very stabilized way that then supports the energy, and is supported by the energy, supports the investigation, supports the sense of rapture or delight, which also then supports the calm and the um, 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 where am I? the concentration, the samadhi. And then the third and the last of the um, stabilizing factors is one that's not so well known in America. How many people think that they're equanimous? Pardon? Well, I don't know. As she's saying, should I be equanimous? Do you mean equanimous every moment of every day? Yeah. No, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Most of the time, okay, good. Okay, so maybe you're equanimous. But, you know, not not like 50% of the people raise their hands immediately. Uh, yeah, I'll try to explain what it means. I think I'm making the word up, but I'm not sure. <laughs> really, what I'm pointing at is a quality of heart and mind called equanimity. And it is it's something we know about. It's not something that's so easily cultivated, so easily um, developed in people. But when we meet somebody who's equanimous, we recognize it. Because they're there, and they're in a kind of balance with whatever is happening, whether it's good or bad, whether it's right or wrong. They're there for the whole thing, and it's part of the way economy is understood. The term in Buddhism and Pali is upeka, and it's one of the um, um, Four, what am I thinking of? Four heart qualities. Thank you, Brahma Viharas, really, of um, of um, uh, metta or, or metta compassion. Um, uh, what else? Joy. Karuna. Karuna. Compassion. <laughs> no, Karuna is compassion. I don't want Karuna. I want the third one. Mudita. Thank you. I have no mind tonight. That's part of my equanimity. I can sit here with no mind and give a talk. <laughs> That's pretty good. So, um, and, but, so it's this, so right. So loving kindness, 
compassion, uh, sympathetic joy, and then upaka or equanimity is one of the Brahma Viharas, one of the heart qualities in Buddhism. And equanimity is is a kind of balance in the middle of whatever is happening. It's a balance of mind. And you ever notice how we get pulled or we get pushed or we get moved depending on what's happening? And yet when we find our balance or we find our stability or when we find our equanimity, then we can deal with it. Then we work with it. <clears throat> and partly one of the things that supports the sense of equanimity is practice in general because practice allows us to um, recognize the changing nature of reality is part of the way reality is. Anybody not get that? Right? Like things change. Everything changes. That, that's what happens. You know, I hate to be such a sports guy, but, you know, the 49ers won five Super Bowls and then haven't even been back in 18 years, right? That's what happens. And if they win the next, we're all going to say, not, not all, some of us, they're going to be happy and say, oh, you know, great, they've got their sixth Super Bowl. But it's just as likely they could lose, right? And, you know, so then it'll be everybody will be down. But the reality is, of course, they're not going to win every time. Right? That's just part of reality. Meaning, reality is always changing. Anybody notice that they've changed a lot in their life? <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, we laugh, but, but that's an important thing to pay attention to because we're going to keep changing. And really, we don't often want to change. Or we don't change and we want to change. You know, things like that happen too. Equanimity is learning how to be right where we are with some balance, with some sense of composure, collectedness, with all these other qualities in balance. <clears throat> this is from... Uh, um, Christina Feldman and Jack Hornfield. They wrote in a book that they wrote, they said, the greatest art in spiritual life is finding balance. The greatest art in spiritual life is finding balance. The entire teachings of the Buddha are summed up in his encouragement to find and travel the middle path, to seek neither the extremes of mortification and aversion for life, nor the extreme of indulgence, of losing ourselves in pleasure-seeking, the balance between these two is the path of awakening and freedom. The path of balance is to be with what is true in life and to love that. The path of balance is to be with what is true in life and to love that, to be committed to that truth on every level of our being. The path of balance is to be with what is true in life and to love that, to be committed to the truth on every level of our being. So this is the quality that can be present in any moment of experience, surprisingly, called equanimity. And one of the, sometimes, especially on retreat, people will ask about equanimity. 
and they'll think equanimity means things don't change or things stay very just always calm or always you always have your samadhi or you're always something but that's that's a misunderstanding equanimity means you can be turned upside down and stay very present with the upside downness that's here you can know that upside downness is part of human life it's not a mistake it's not wrong it's the doorway that reality is presenting for you to wake up right now and I like to use that because I think that helps us when we understand practice is not giving, making things perfect practice is learning how to wake up to reality and then reality shows us what's here we don't control reality we're not going to control reality we can't fix or set reality what we can do is wake up here now with this experience the human experience which is not an experience of becoming something perfect but realizing the perfection that's already here so those are the seven factors of enlightenment and um, what I'll do is um, haven't been interacting with you so much so I'd like to do that more next week um, but I'm going to also talk a little bit summing up the, the end it will be the last talk on the four foundations of mindfulness and then we'll do more interactive so if you have any questions from last week or this week about the factors of enlightenment please hold on to them even if you think you're not supposed to hold on to anything please hold on to them you know tell them I said it's okay and let's talk about it or if anything comes up in your practice and I gave you some homework I know I gave everybody homework which is to really be mindful for a week and now I'm extending your homework for another week like be really mindful this week see where do you stop being mindful and why and what do you need to do what would allow you to practice in the bathroom, in the kitchen, in the bedroom, in the living room, in the TV room, in the computer room, in the street, in the car, in the bus, you know, in the supermarket, in the drugstore, in the wherever, in the workplace. What keeps you from practicing? What keeps you from using the amazing potentiality that's sitting in your seat from paying attention to reality? And don't, I'm not saying to do it so then you get critical and judgmental of yourself. This is how we learn how to practice by paying attention and learning from what we know and what we don't know, not from judging ourselves harshly. That's not helpful at all. Okay, let's sit for a minute before we end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.